0: Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist Dr. Nazanine Moali. Hello there. You are listening to episode. 193 of sexology podcast i'm your host dr nazanin moali if you missed our announcement last week i wanted to share with you that during month of september every friday for cooking an aphrodisiac recipe in our Instagram account. We're making it from the scratch. We'll send the list of ingredients in our newsletter. So if you're not part of newsletter, make sure you are joining and also following our stories at Sexology Podcast. Today, we're gonna talk about a topic that I wanted to discuss for the longest time in our show like many of you guys I've been doing many zoom happy hour meetings with friends and colleagues and I found myself that I've been giving lots of sex at ed- around STI prevention, treatment. And it's interesting that many of these informations, you would think are the information that one would get during high school or even middle school in ideal world. And what happens is, Many of the sex ed that people are getting all around the world at the abstinent base, and the message is so negative that people often zoning out and they're not paying attention, or the information is not accurate. So, for the longest time, I wanted to find someone to come talk to us about treatments of STIs because uh, sometimes people don't know how to protect themselves, and also they think it's a kiss of death to their sexual if they get diagnosed with these things. And as we're going to talk about today, many of these challenges are treatable. These are the conditions that are treatable. I'm so excited that I met Ariel Vatras. She's a nurse practitioner, and she's a sex-positive health educator. And we're going to talk about many of the questions, hopefully, that you have, and we're going to discuss the solutions around some of these challenges related to sexually transmitted diseases. So as I mentioned, our guest is Ariel Watrest. dressed she, she was part of a, a research program that worked on the HIV PrEP studies. She worked on a research department as the main clinician on multiple HIV prevention studies. She's been at Tufts University for seven years. She helped many undergrad and graduate students to kind of work through some of the sexual challenges that they have. And she also was promoted to clinic sexual health specialist a couple years ago. She also gave talks at both regional and national college health conferences on HIV prevention, sex-positive language for providers, trauma-informed direct medical care, and how to provide Gender-neutral care that is inclusive. Her bio is very impressive, so definitely make sure you're checking it on the show notes. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ariel. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Ariel Watchress on our show. Ariel, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so looking forward to this conversation. I know we talked about it in the past that I really want to help people have a better understanding about their sexual health, what can they do to optimize it, but not necessarily have the same kind of tone that we heard at the abstinent-based classes that oh, those yes. scared strategies. So when we chatted, I said, oh my God, she's a wonderful and perfect person for this. So tell us a little bit about your back And how did you get into this work?
1: Absolutely. So, I am a nurse practitioner, and before I became a nurse practitioner, I was kind of floating after undergrad, I didn't really know what direction I wanted to take and I thought I wanted to do, to be a doctor. And so I started taking pre-med classes and was advised by a very wise teaching assistant to really get a a job in a clinical setting to see if, if this was actually what I wanted. And I very serendipitously found a position at a small clinic for homeless and disenfranchised youth in Boston and my eyes were opened to all of the parameters of sexual health and HIV prevention and birth control access that young adults were dealing with. And that job really opened my eyes and definitely established my foundation and interest in this work.
0: Wonderful. And it seems like you do lots of sex education in the clinic right now and colleges. Is that, is that part of what you do as well?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So clinically, I work at Tufts University in Boston. And beyond that, I do a lot of outreach, both on campus and off campus with students. So I'll do sex, sex health 101, we'll talk about anatomy, in conjunction with different kinds of sex toys, and how to take care of those components of our lives. I also do a lot of outreach and education with other providers to assist them in becoming more sex health positive or at least more neutral and less judgmental in their spaces around this with their patients. Um, but yes, anything kind of around that, I, I do.
0: What mm-hmm. a great gift that they have you on campus. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I remember when I went to college, so my listeners, they know that I moved to the US when I was 17 for college. So like you get a little bit of abstinence-based sex education in high school in Iran. I was like, you know, this is, this doesn't sound like Relevant. <laughs> so I'm like, but well, yes, I love sex. Uh, I'm not going to follow this. And then I didn't get any information around kind of sexual health until I started undergrad at UCSD. And I, we had this wonderful uh, professor that she was teaching about human sexuality. And it's interesting, at that point, I was 19. And that was the first time that I was getting exposed to all of those information that I would arguably say. Like someone that's 13 or 12, they need to learn about. That's why I think there are lots of mis- misconception about this topic.
1: I agree with everything you said. And I will say that uh, your experience that you shared about learning all of this at 19 is a story that I hear a lot from the people that I meet. So generally speaking, the people that I meet around sort of the first time sexual interest or sexual health visit is usually in response to something that's happened into their, in, their bodies or in their lives around their sexuality in a clinical sense. And they're coming in with something happening and they don't have the basic understandings of how that part of their body works or why, or what the, and I'm saying this in quotes, what is normal, right? That range of normal that people can experience. And so we're starting in a place of sometimes crisis or sometimes concern with no background information. And we have to kind of make sure that that background information is established so that they can understand what's going on with their bodies. And I agree. I think if this information was available a lot earlier, it would make a huge difference. I do see that in patients who've had comprehensive sex education, which is not that many. When I meet them in the clinical setting, their comfort and their confidence and autonomy in their sexual lives is very different than those who are experiencing it for the first time with me in a clinical setting.
0: Absolutely. And I'm glad that the, like many women that you're saying that like young women or men, when there's a challenge, they're coming in to ask for help because something else that I see in some of my clients is like the first time they get some kind of STI, any any challenges around that, they feel so much shame. Oh my Gosh, they just yes. want to disconnect. They don't want to do anything about it. And as we're going to talk about, many of these things are easily curable, addressable, so they don't need to kind of like feel they are broken. Therefore, there's nothing they can do.
1: Absolutely. The shame is palpable sometimes. Absolutely.
0: Tell us, what are some of the, speaking of that, what are some common misconceptions, myth that you hear that people have around STIs? That's a
1: very big question, and it's a very important one to address because I think that Culturally, that shame that you talked about that people are coming in with is being laced through how we are giving being given information about STIs. So people say STDs, they say STIs, sexually transmitted diseases, or sexually transmitted infections. I genuinely am not sure which one people want to be used more, but I like the STI more because I think the word, even just the word disease, is very ominous. But I try to I use them interchangeably at this point. And I would say that one of the biggest components of shame and misconception that I hear is a very simple term that people use when they come in, if they're coming in for a screening or if they're coming in for an issue that's going on and they say, I had my testing on this date and I'm clean. So they're already starting from a space that they have been taught that if somebody has an STI, they are in quotes dirty, which is simply not true. So that's a big one. The other one that I hear a lot of is there's this incredible polarity in beliefs about this. So either I experience patients who have an experience with an STI and it is the end of their sexuality, or I experience people who don't have enough awareness of what they're experiencing or education around what they're experiencing and don't think it's that big a deal. And there's this very complex, multifaceted middle area where I like to be with my patients to help them understand the nuances of a diagnosis. But generally, I meet people at one extreme or the other. I think there are a lot of misconceptions about what risk means. And that word in and of itself can be very challenging to hear. There's also a lot of confusion still to this day around what STIs, which STIs are curable, meaning we can make them go away completely from a body or treatable meaning we can help reduce the symptoms, but they may recur. That's something I hear a lot and sort of what the different management and treatment options are. So those are some of the big ones I hear about.
0: Thank you for sharing those. Those are I, those are very common from the conversation that I have the client that they're struggling. Mm. There's the same kind of challenges. And I love that you pointed out the clean piece because I yeah. feel like when you're thinking then if I have an SCI, then I'm unclean, and what would that mean about me as a person? And what's mind blowing to me that like many of my clients said they got STIs, they got the from the relationships that they were either in the monogamous relationships or like you know it it wasn't these are not the people that are necessarily promiscuous. There's nothing wrong with kind of being kind of sexually exploring things, but right. then people have this misconception that okay if someone is only having sex with a few people or if they're in a committed relationship, they're not at risk. And you call it as right. the kind of risk part. So I want to hear about more about the at risk. What did you mean about that? So
1: when we talk about STIs and we talk about, you know, in quotes, safe sex, what we're talking about are sexual activities or decisions or components of somebody's sexual lives that will determine the likelihood of them being um, being uh, in contact with an SDI. And the term that we generally use for that is risk. What is the risk with this activity? So um, I do a lot of uh, discussion and presentations on HIV prevention, HIV prep, and those things. And It's a very interesting space because there are a lot of people in the field who are really trying to move away from that word risk. Mm -hmm. And and how do we talk about this? Because I think we're already assuming judgment and shame if we use that term sometimes. And people are generally coming in with those components too when they're talking about their sex lives in, in the context of a concern for an STI. So when we talk about risk or when I talk about risk, what I'm trying to convey is tell me about sort of your sexual behaviors, your sexual health decisions, and how are you keeping your body safe from STIs? That's a lot more words than the word risk, but I also haven't found a word that fits that yet, but I also know that I've had patients who don't like that term, right? And so that's what, so what I'm talking about when I mention risk, it's really the context. What are the contexts that someone is experiencing sexually that may have a higher concern For an STI exposure.
0: And I love this term that you use that sexual health decisions, because I feel it doesn't have that moral judgment in it. Because, like, I think with risk, it comes like based on whose view and it can take kind of become political and moral and all of that. But when you're talking about decisions, that's something Mm -hmm. that's more objective. Uh, Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: we agree. <laughs> good, good. Uh,
0: tell me, uh, what what do we need to know about STI? For our listeners that they didn't get the information, like, like the way I, I didn't get it, and they're curious to kind of make sure that they are preparing themselves and equipping themselves with this information, what are some of the basic information they need to have?
1: That's a really great question. I would say that as the name states, STDs or STIs, It's important to understand that there are certain types of bacterial, viral, mainly those two, but there are other kinds too of infections that are more commonly experienced in transmission through sexual contact. And that term, sexual contact, is quite broad because there are some infections that are very, very specific about the types of fluid that they can transfer in, and then there are some that really only need skin to skin contact when there's an exposure happening. And that statement in and of itself is the crux of a lot of education that I do with people generally in a space of concern. And so the opportunity for your listeners to understand that this is something they can start to look at when they're not in a crisis moment is awesome. And I'm excited to be here to help to help kind of dismantle that. But just to appreciate that there are certain infections that a human body can experience that are more likely to happen in those contexts. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that I help people unpack around sexual health and sexual sexually transmitted infections is that there isn't one specific type of, in quotes, safe sex that will protect from all of them because they're all different kinds and we have to be really careful with that. And so it can be very confusing and very nuanced to kind of understand that there are certain types of contact that are more likely to have a component of a certain STI versus others. And that's where I think it gets a little confusing and also frustrating, too, if you're trying to protect yourself. And as you said before, if somebody's only had one partner or more, a few partners, you know, I'm not, I'm not implying any judgment, but they've had, you know, routine testing and then something presents itself, sometimes certain STIs can kind of lay dormant and, and present later. And it can be very confusing to understand that if you're it, experiencing it for the first time. And you don't feel like you have a context that matches that.
0: So important. I was just having this conversation, interestingly, with my hairdresser yesterday. Uh, I love him and I've been seeing him for 20 years and he's recently single. He's a gay gay man and he's like casually dating. And he, he, he was sharing with me that how there is this disconnect between the Younger generation and the older generation. He was telling me because of what his generation experienced with HIV. They, they, he said like he learned that with the partners that are same same age, more, he finds it that they are more mindful of protection and safety and all of that. And he was saying that with the younger population that is having sex, he finds it that, that they're not necessarily. They say, oh, I, I just did HIV testing. I'm quote unquote clean. Clean, right? And they don't want to use any other form of protection and how, how challenging that can be and how it can put the partner in a vulnerable space, which made me wonder that all of our experiences kind of play a role in our kind of sexual experiences and behavior. So I love that you talked about one form of protection doesn't guarantee that that you will not get any of these SDIs. And I know that can be a risky and scary place to be. So tell, tell us then what can we do then? Because I feel when I, when I hear that, it creates this kind of anxiety Then okay, oh absolutely. If I'm protecting myself, I'm wearing condom. If I'm if I'm taking prep, all of that, then uh, I'm still vulnerable. So what what are some of your suggestions around that? I love that
1: question, and I think it's really hard. And I want to just address also what you said too. You know, in the context of of the conversation with your hairdresser, there is a very interesting, almost like a hierarchy of concerns about certain STIs, and Mm -hmm. some hold far more stigma than others, and Just very quickly on HIV, it's been a fascinating graph really to follow um, how cultural perception of HIV has shifted. I worked on PrEP studies before they became FDA approved at my previous job at Fenway Health in Boston. And watching that evolve through time over the last nine years is incredible, how it's just a kind of a part of the conversation. And there are still, Absolutely, pockets in the country in the world that need to have more education about it. But sort of shifting the, the the focus on the fact that that one pill, one pill a day, and also the tests for that don't negate protection for everything else. Like you still have to protect yourself from these other things. And we are seeing some concerning correlations with folks who aren't using other methods with other STI increases. So back to your question and the anxiety provoking component of it, which is something I have happen with patients when I talk about it. We What I usually try to explain is that human sexuality is not black and white. And we all sort of live at various components in this very wide gray zone. It's a very beautiful, wide, complex gray zone. And there are certain STIs that we can test for very efficiently and very clearly. And then there are the ones that are a little bit more nuanced when it comes to how we test for them. I'm thinking specifically of HPV. We don't have that's the human papillomavirus, we have certain types of tests for certain types of body parts, but we don't have a fully comprehensive test that can look at all of the v- various body parts. I'm thinking specifically of, like we don't have a test for the penis or a really good oral test yet. And so kind of giving information and giving the, con- the context of testing on that can be a little tricky. Another one that's notorious for its confusion and, and stigma is herpes. And that one is a, is one that I, I talk to people a lot about. And I have to explain, you know, this is a very sort of nuanced conversation when it happens that the tests that we have available right now are really good at their job when there's a sore, a herpes sore present. And if there isn't a herpes sore present, the other tests that we have available uh, like a blood test aren't awesome at their jobs. Unfortunately, there are other tests that we're working on figuring out. And it's really a question of what are the components of your care that you can do? And what, are the, what is your understanding of the parameters of that care? So sort of, what are the limits? Because we know, for example, that herpes, unfortunately, can exist and be transmitted outside of the area that a condom covers. And helping people in that space who have done, like you said, are doing all of the things that they think they need to be doing, and they usually are, they're usually rocking their sexual health care, and then have something like that happen, it's a hard conversation to have because how do I explain that what they did was perfect for what they were covering it for, but it wasn't enough? And the, and the problem is, is that bodies and sexuality are very complex, and there are ways that some of these infections can be transmitted that we don't have the protection for yet unless simply you're not engaging in that activity.
0: Well, thank you so much for this comprehensive overview and I feel I I learned tons of great things but I also I want to people kind of talk about what's curable and what's treatable because what I'm hearing that People can minimize the possibility of them getting this SDIs with all of those wonderful options out there. But there are going to be situations, there are going to be people that will get SDIs, although if they are doing the things that, they, as you said, like they're, they're supposed to do to protect themselves. So tell us a little bit about the different categories of what are some of the infections that we can completely eliminate?
1: Sure, and the other thing too to appreciate is that, you know, the science on all of this is evolving and we are, we are in the process of different vaccines and different treatments being developed for some of the things that I'm gonna talk about, which is really exciting. So generally speaking, all of the STIs that I'm gonna mention right now all have treatment and management options. It's just a question of, is there a chance of recurrence or is there a long-term concerns? So generally speaking, I'm speaking on a very general term here, the, the, the sort of the first breakdown that we look at when we're looking at STIs are generally there are bacterial ones and then there are viral ones. And generally, the, the bacterial ones that we usually talk about are gonorrhea, chlamydia and syphilis. Those are sort of the main ones, the more common ones that we see. All of those are bacterial based and can be treated and cured when it comes to syphilis, the treatment and the the follow-up is a little bit more nuanced and it takes a little bit more follow-up than the gonorrhea and chlamydia ones. But generally speaking, those are curable. They all can have long-term effects if not treated appropriately. And so, and at different times can also have no symptoms which is why I'm such a fan of screening, STI screening just sort of generally. But those are the ones that we kind of talk about as the more known to be curable ones. Then the other group that we usually talk about um, sort of generally, again, are the viral STIs. And again, as I said before, there are other more smaller pockets of different STIs, but these are sort of the big ones that folks know about. And so in that bracket, we have HIV, HPV, and HSV, which is the term for um, herpes. And then we also have hep C and hep B, which can sometimes be sexually transmitted as well. Also, in some cases, through shared needle use. Now, herpes and HIV can both be treated really well and managed really well. HIV has its own timeline, it has its own significance, so I'm sure that could be its own podcast episode another time, but the, the medication options for that at this point are really great. And we mentioned PrEP before. So PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And the idea behind that is that someone's taking an antiviral medication every day to prevent the virus, should they have an exposure, uh, beginning to replicate at all in the first place. And it's really effective. There are other um, methods of PrEP that are being investigated that look really promising, like a vaginal ring, an injection version, because not everybody likes to take a pill every day. So we should have other options. Herpes has really good medicinal management at this point. There is work happening around a vaccine on that. And that one is tricky. I mean, the name itself literally means to creep. Herpetic means Bye. to creep, I know. And it's it can be very hard to kind of sit with that diagnosis because I can't guarantee what it will look like for each person. And it's something that can recur in the body. There can be outbreaks when there's stress or sickness, lack of sleep, all things I see in college health age people a lot. But there are really decent um, options for management of that one as well. HPV, again, another podcast opportunity (laughs) because there's so many types. Um, When we think about the ones that we look for in sexual transmission, there are types that can cause, there are over 100 types of the virus, first of all, of HPV. There are types that can cause genital warts. There are types that we are concerned about to be precancerous in the anal area, in the cervical area. There are also types that can be linked to oral cancers. And so the treatment on that one really depends on the type that we're talking about. And the sort of long-term diagnosis, you know, the word curable in this context is tricky, because in some cases, yes, some bodies can just clear the virus. And in some cases, the body needs help getting it removed repeatedly. So it's a it's a it's a little bit more nuanced. But for all of them, there are definitely options for management.
0: How wonderful that you were working at kind of like at the development of PrEP. And as you said, there are so many exciting improvements when it comes to addressing and helping with kind of like treating these conditions. And, and I would imagine that like what, what it looked like, the treatment 10 years ago right now is like very yeah. different because I know that with HIV early on, it was such a scary diagnosis, but I know many people right now, they're taking the medication and they're living their life. Which is a very wonderful improvement. With the PrEP, I know many, many of people that I work with, they're taking it. It's with like, is it that the, the right way of taking it? I guess like as prescribed, is it that you have to take it like year along or when you're planning to have sex? What is the recommended way of doing it?
1: That is such a great question, and I'm so glad you brought that up. So, currently, the only FDA approved method of taking it is once a day. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it would sort of be a, I don't, I don't want to say a maintenance medication, but it's certainly a daily medication for a period of time. There is certainly a, a period of time when you're starting the medication that it takes time, similar to birth control to get to the point where there's enough in the system to be effective what's interesting about prep is that we have data on certain points in the body like blood rectal tissue i believe cervical or vaginal tissue i cannot recall to show us how long it took for the medication to be present and being effective in that area and so generally speaking the general rule is it takes about three weeks for the medication to become effective throughout the body completely and there's also a component of time for people who are starting it generally in the first three to four weeks that they might have some stomach side effects, they might have a little bit of diarrhea, they might have a little bit of vomiting. And so generally, the guidance is, you know, if you if you are tolerating the medication, once you started it, and it's feeling good, and it applies to your sexual life, to sort of just stay on it, if that applies to you, if it's healthy for you, if you're not having any kidney issues, or bone issues, or anything like that, as long as it applies to someone's life, I've had people be on it for a couple of years, and then something changes in their sexual health life that they don't either they don't need it anymore anymore. Or, well, no, they don't. Let me rephrase that. They, they don't need it anymore. And the reasons vary. Either they've stopped having sex for a while, or they're going into a relationship that's sexually monogamous. So there are ways that that can be tweaked. And if they decide that they want to go back on it, they can certainly do that.
0: Thank you for that wonderful description. I feel like many times people, when it comes to medications, they don't know what is recommended or they think they can get away with it. So I was thinking about like, yeah, take it right before I'm going to this party in the morning and that would be it. They they don't know that they're not necessarily uh, following up with with the correct way of, I guess, like the good way of taking it.
1: Right. And it's exciting, too, because there is data coming out and none of this is uh, FDA approved yet here um, in the U.S., but there, there is promising data showing us that it might be able to be used successfully sort of as needed, but we don't have enough to support that yet as a sort of recommended way to do it. Are people still probably choosing to do it that way? They might be. But generally speaking, as a, from a prescription standpoint, it's recommended once a day.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that again, that it's not necessarily a death sentence that many people think when you get oh, any goodness. of these, these kind of like a, a diseases, infections and any of those things, there are ways to manage it. And that's what I want people to think about. And as you said, the earlier that you get the diagnosis, the screening, the more successful you'll be at kind of like addressing it effectively.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about what we were talking about before Sort of about the common misconceptions, I will say that one of the biggest conversations I have with people around any STI diagnosis, and I've given diagnoses for all of the STIs that I've talked about with you so far, and others, but these are the, all of these I have. One of the ways that we kind of talk about it together when it's happening is to appreciate that it's not a death sentence, and it's certainly not a death sentence for somebody's sex life. It's a question of a component of, of your life that now needs management, and attention and that might mean a different new approach to your sexuality and how you're engaging in it but it doesn't mean it has to be over it just might mean it needs to evolve and that is a big ask when somebody's dealing with a big diagnosis and definitely and i'm not saying that one of these is bigger than any other i'm sort of saying what it is for that person and holding that space with them when they're dealing with it But generally, it's it's a question of getting the resources and being able to kind of sit with it and adjust to it and have it be a part of your life, but not run your life.
0: Love that. I think that's such a wonderful way of looking at it. And I know that in a, a hypothetical way, people think it's it's important to talk about, say, sex safety and kind of like checking in with the partner. So I think most people agree with that. I think when it gets tricky is that when they want to implement it. And I have this conversation even with my adult clients that like perhaps I'm starting to hook up with this guy in the bar. I'm flirting with this person. It's not, not, not necessarily a, kind of a long-term partner, there's some anxiety and discomfort about how to bring it up, when to bring it up, and what is enough. So can you tell us, I, and I know I, I feel like it's a, it can be its own series of podcasts, <laughs> all of those things that I mentioned, <laughs> but can you give us some guidance around that?
1: First of all, I totally agree. It could absolutely be its own series. And if you want to do that, let me know. Um, <laughs> There are two pieces to this, to this challenge, this challenging component of sexuality. One is sort of when to do it (laughs) and also how to say it. And there isn't one way to do it, right? There isn't one way, just like there isn't one method of protection that can protect us from all of the STIs out there, with the exception of abstinence, but that's not a very exciting way to live. It's really a question of developing language that the person is comfortable expressing about themselves first, and then being able to practice it and finding ways to bring it up in contexts that make them feel safe and and powerful. One of my lifelong professional goals is to help as many people as I can develop sexual health autonomy. When it comes to the clinical spaces and the medical spaces that we are in, we as a medical community have failed and we we have to fix it and we have to change it. And so if people are given the tools and the language and the opportunity to Figure out how to say what they need to say about their own sexual status so that they can then relay it to somebody else in a context that is a hookup or online, you know, planning to meet up or a new partner or a monogamous partner where you want something to change. The first piece of advice I have is don't let that moment be the first time you're saying it. Try a couple times before, maybe with a provider like me. Or someone that you trust, just to practice the words and run through opportunities of what you think it might feel like if you say it, and if if, and if there's rejection, you know what are ways that you can then take care of yourself. So I'm thinking about like a number of people that I've talked to about a new herpes diagnosis who are just crushed and they think this is it, and there no one's going to want to have sex with them ever again, and so we do a lot of practice around how to talk about this and when to bring it up. And from the field, from what people have shared with me that's worked is not bringing it up in the middle of a makeout session, like maybe talking about it before or before you're about to have sex, like have it be a separate thing so that it's not a loaded moment any more than it is, especially if you both really want something wonderful to happen. And then there's this sort of reality jolt that you have to deal with and sort of talking about it before. Does that feel really sexy? No, it doesn't. But I've had people say that it it has had better outcomes because they can talk about it and really discuss together what they need to do to move forward. One of my favorite times that I heard about this working really well is that a patient I had was dealing with a genital area diagnosis of herpes and talked to their partner about it outside of the bedroom, outside of a sexual context for them and came up with all of these ways that they can be safe, using their term, in quotes, safe. And it was actually very sexual. And it was very, it was was a turn on for them to kind of think about the components that they could address together, and, and the new ways that they could be intimate, which I loved. I thought that was really cool. But practicing it before, find someone you trust to kind of play with it. Don't do it in the heat of the moment. Obviously, if it happens in that space, it can still be productive. But from what I've heard from my patients that's not always the best time to do it
0: I heard about it as well that like it's people sometimes avoid talking about it which is understandable if, if they have shame and a kind of like a negative reaction around it they kind of bring it up and right before penetration or any kind of yes. sexual experience and then it at times it's impact the sexual experience the person is kind of like not even ready cognitively to process that and they take it as a, a rejection. Exactly. That at times, even if you talk about it outside, maybe the the person is not ready to be involved in in sexual experience with you. But at least it's my experience based on what I'm hearing from friends and colleagues and clients that people are more open about kind of having those conversations and moving forward if the information is presented to them outside the bedroom but it's so unfortunate that there are not like so many people that they don't have awareness around it or they're not honest about it i have like especially with hbb that you mentioned that some men if it's a male female kind of like a, a sexual experience uh, some men may, might not have the, even the symptoms so they don't know even that's an issue should we ask about testing like can I see your test results? Should we say, like, you know, do you have condom conversation is enough? <laughs> what, is, what can we do in more of a casual encounters to kind of at least maximize our sexual health kind of protection and autonomy?
1: That's a great question. I, I've seen some people especially in hookup culture and different apps that people use, they might just list on their profile when their last testing was. This is more specific to HIV testing than than I've heard for other ones. I've also, in a a less casual context, I've had people, you know, when they're about to start with a new sexual partner or partners, will all agree to get tested together. And so they'll all go together. So they have the same baseline, which I love that too. I think that's awesome. I've worked with a number of patients in my current clinical setting who are poly and have very clear networks of who who's gotten who's had testing when and if something happens they can kind of figure out exactly what the what the thread is between everybody and it's also based on what kind of sexual contact we're talking about because similar to how there isn't one method of protection that stops all STIs there isn't the same related concern for all STIs with every sexual contact. So there's really really depends on what you're talking about. And giving folks as much power as they can around the language to understand what's going on for themselves is vital. But you're so right that if they are experiencing a rejection or or uh, a mishandling of emotions from the person that they're telling, that's very debilitating and the number of times that i've talked to people after that's happened you know one of the things that we talk about is sort of how to move forward from this what does it it doesn't mean anything about you that they couldn't understand what was going on and if they aren't willing to kind of be in that space with you then maybe they're not worthy of being in that space with you but it's hard because i don't think as a cultural as a clinical medical culture that we have empowered people to think it's okay to have these and i'm not saying anybody is ever excited when i tell them they have herpes no one ever is but there are ways that we can help people understand that it's not the end of their lives, their sexual lives or other components too.
0: Absolutely. And I have tons of clients and again, friends that they shared with me that like in this new sexual experiences of the partners, they share that information with the partner, they move forward, they are in wonderful relationships. So it's not like automatically, if you disclose that to someone, that will end that relationship. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I've actually had patients bring in their partners to talk the three of us together because the part the patient really wants the partner to have as much information as they can and the, and the patient just doesn't have the language and so the three of us obviously with everybody's consent right will talk about that, that component of that person's medical history or just that sti in general just to kind of get some information
0: but ariel i can talk to you about this forever <laughs> <laughs> i'm feeling that too <laughs> <laughs> I love your uh, openness, first of all. Thank you. Like I feel like I can see that while your clients are feeling comfortable about, it, about, you. about these topics, but also the depth of the information and the knowledge that you have. So I bet our listeners are thinking, we want more of that. <laughs> so where can they uh, get a hold of you? Do you have content out there? Please share a little bit about those resources with us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely on Twitter. It's Watchress, and then the letter A at the end. I'm developing a website. I definitely do a lot of my outreach and my education at universities. So if you look me up on the Tufts University webpage, I'm there. I'm also a part of the CARE office, which is the sexual misconduct prevention team. And I do a lot of outreach for them too. I'm happy to talk with folks and I am in the process of doing more sort of standalone talks too. So yeah, I'm excited to, to expand more and help more people be empowered. Thank you so much for
0: all you're doing. And this was definitely a delight. Hopefully we'll have you back on the show in future. I'd
1: be delighted. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: I hope you found our conversation useful. I loved how Ariel broke down the different types of SCI's and provided us information about how can we cultivate sexual health autonomy. One thing that I was thinking about as she was talking to us about the role of language, how are we talking about these things uh, with others and also with ourselves, has an impact. It could stigmatize us? Could Demotivate us to take care of ourselves. So my invitation to you is implement some of the suggestions that she she shared with us about using an alternative form of language and narrative with others. But specifically track how you're talking to yourself about these things and what are the, some of the conversations that shows up that stigmatizing and how can you think about how can you reframe that. At the end, I wanted to ask you guys I if you are enjoying these episodes, it's really important if you take a moment and write us a review on iTunes. The main reason is that the more reviews we get, we're going to reach a broader audience and it's really help us to get this information to people who really need it. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast.